0: episode 372 of the Creighton Crowbar. It is Friday the 4th of June 2021. My name is Chris Thurston and joining me tonight are Alex Wiltshire. Hello. And Tom Francis. Hello. We're all feeling a little bit weird because the podcast software we use does a countdown to the beginning of recording, which is a three, two, one, and then any number of flashing zeros (laughs) before you're allowed to begin speaking.
1: It was a world record
0: tonight. At 15, 15 full zeros, but I find it quite charming in its way. It's as if, uh, like a space shuttle launch was like, you know, three, two, one, hang on, hang oh, 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 I- still plugged oh. into the mains. Uh, 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 oh, there it is. Hey,
1: <laughs> I th- I'd like to think that, um, you know, the podcaster, the remote podcaster, is um he's just got a cheeky wink and looking at us going, mm-hmm. Oh I might start now, might not. <laughs> <laughs> Let your takes Ooh, got them ready. That's now the voice go of Zencastr, is it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a goblin, <laughs> a cheeky goblin.
0: Oh, you've made it a goblin, which means I forgive it. Why does that always work? <laughs> Good. 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 Good Good. Yeah. Well, by way of um, internet news, we should get right into it, because in an unprecedented turn of events, Tom has six games to talk about. <sighs> it's a logjam. I haven't been on in a while. Right, right, and they just they just back up those takes. Come, <laughs> yep, will come out at the same time.
2: My only two um, modes of existence are either I'm, I'm unable to summon the effort to play any games and I just watch TV for months on end, or I suddenly start playing games and then just can't stop playing games and play loads of different games
1: it's this binging lifestyle of yours tom
0: (laughs) it's the fact that you remember enough of them to have formed opinions well we'll see i suppose but (laughs) i can form opinions in record time
1: (laughs) (laughs) what if you mix up your opinions
2: oh like like give the a take for one game about a different game exactly yeah, well, if Let's I tell you that Mass Effect Legendary Edition just came out today and it's a great game about trading at Empire Networks, then <laughs> you know I've got too mixed up.
0: <laughs> it's, it's funny because I do you do this thing, which, aside, we'll get into the news, but do you do the thing where you play a game and then you realize, oh, there's no podcast mileage here at all? And just sort of like, <laughs> kind of, it changes the way you feel about it? Because I have that.
2: I think I'm, I'm too, like salty i get annoyed about <laughs> things really fast and so i've always got something to gra- grouse about um and then mm. yeah these are all a lot of these are gonna be very surface level like mass effect legendary edition i'm i'm only a little way into mass effect one so it's um uh, real brief
0: no spoilers um <laughs> i'm joking but, uh, i played it um <laughs> the um yeah because i had that recently with um monster train which is a game i finally played a ton of and i had this real mm. of suspicion as i was into my that's the noise i was expecting that to elicit like, as i was into, like my maybe maybe 10th hour with it that like i really genuinely have nothing to say about this <laughs> <That> tom <laughs> either tom either hasn't already said or would know more about and therefore yeah. just wait for wait for him to say it. so i just sort of was like you know what i'm playing this for me now and immediately stopped and that is- <laughs> you stopped because yeah. I think I have the
1: opposite reaction, which is um, whenever I feel that I should play something that 's the moment at which i don 't want to play it, and I huh. kind of have this urge to play something that nobody wants me to so it's like that <laughs> whenever I was right i don 't I really try to avoid writing um, um, reviews game reviews, um, but when I do do a review it's even if it 's a game i 've wanted to play. I suddenly don't want to play it at all. uh, And it's a real chore to to boot it up. Hmm. And I think that that is (laughs) the diametric opposite of what anyone would imagine reviewing would be like, and probably is like for most other reviewers. It's probably like that
0: when you start. Yeah. Yeah. I think playing a game is at its best when it is a subversive act. And I think maybe that's a generational feeling that has gone away now, actually, you know? like like we're not we're not squirreling away to play sonic or something are we no we're in enjoying an entertainment form that's completely acceptable yeah (laughs) what's the point of that exactly
2: (laughs) i would still like to know what you think of monster train there chris (laughs) just like i really like like it it yeah
0: i do really like it i i have i have really enjoyed it um I I realized cuz like I had I had received so much information about it from you on the podcast. That I thought I knew what it was and then I realized that I didn't realize what I it was. I was lying the whole you. time. <laughs> no. No, it's not that you were wrong. It's that I think it's obviously... not even cards in it. <laughs> <laughs> um I think it's like that thing of like until you actually start to kind of grok some of those kind of deck building complexities yourself, it's very hard to transmit the fun of that to another person you can tell them it's fun but until yeah. you're actually in the mix of it like i think yeah, it's a yeah, really it's hard incorrect. game
1: to communicate like to to explain yeah. you know, you could I mean, you knew what it was but yeah just the
0: um the experience like and what it, you're thinking
1: about is yeah yes i'll be a shock
0: i like it more than say the spy i will say that mm. um, Interesting. um but i think uh, there's a lot of these games that like have captured people's uh, you know, attentions for years at a time in some cases um that I play like a decent amount of and then get bored and wander off. Um but I I have I have enjoyed I will say this. There'll be my one take on set on uh, Monster Chain and then I'll <laughs> leave it alone. I I've had enjoyed there being a game that to me at least feels wholly about conjuring horse shit. Like <laughs> just <laughs> like just re- just reducing it and maybe maybe this is an opinion like i, I hadn't my time playing spent, spent spent playing slay the spy was prior to being this deep in game dev, and i think this has arrived much at a very different point in that trajectory in that arc for me and now there's something about like this game is about summoning the most degenerate game state you can possibly create yeah. that doesn't if this was a competitive game this would be garbage and like <laughs> And like I've 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 rendered this game I, comically unlosable or comically unwinnable for myself, and I'm going to have fun watching this shake out. And and I'm kind of slowly climbing the various covenant ranks and things. I'm not massively far up, but getting there. And you know, occasionally you get the kind of the oh god, I've got to think now, um, or I've really got to put some thought into this thing. And I can, and then the the vertigo of the possibility space stretches out below me. And I get momentarily kind of intimidated by it. But then it always kind of snaps back comfortingly into some sense of like, well, you didn't know you could combine these things to break the game. And you can, and that's good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The numbers are just ridiculous. I played it for like 300 hours and I recently broke my damage record for like the most damage done by a unit in a single hit. My previous record was 4,000. My new record is 32,000. <laughs> so like, when it gets out of control, it gets really out of control.
1: Yeah, you shared a screenshot um, uh, with us all. And uh, yeah, those <laughs> the numbers were just... Okay, all right. Yep. <laughs> okay. I don't know how in you get it. I here. found
2: out there's, there's actually a limit to how angry you can be in that game. There's a rage thing that increases your damage and it, it maxes out at 999.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason these games are good is because they take all of the fun of being a complete dickhead to somebody else in Magic the Gathering And let you do that to like an unfeeling computer that will still let you come to its game night afterwards, and that is almost the entire (laughs) fun, right? Like they've captured what's great about kind of combo building to a kind of a silly degree, and then just let you do it in a safe environment, and that's nice. Yeah,
2: yeah. That's my whole. That's why it's my favorite genre. Really, is that's what I like. Is I want to, you know. Uh, get really into the mechanics and find ridiculous absurd combos but i don't ever want to be doing it against another human being because i don't want to feel bad about doing that <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. i don't know if there's a sort of a pleasure though if in a game like this this is sort of you know what ifness really but if you could do this kind of game where it's this sort of you know you're building you're laying out this track ahead of you of this sort of in strange machine of different combos running into this and that and multipliers and that kind of thing it's ungainly kind of jerry-built thing and if you're facing that and you can see it being built in front of you and just get the pleasure of of, of that shouldn't work and it is and I can't really counter that anymore but but just watching it in motion might might that ever be entertaining to to be up against i don't know
0: it could just the question is is it going to be more is it going to be more entertaining than getting to do it yourself and i think the answer is probably not
1: but if you felt that you could have and maybe i don't Mm. know there might be a way of of finding kind of intense fun that would have been frustrating
2: i don't have a lot of experience with this but with with a lot of pvp games when i have played them that have very particular builds when i come up against a build that's just like way better than mine and destroys me it's dispiriting because now i feel like i've just got to do that i've just got to do what that guy did i don't get to come up with a build i just saw his and his is better than mine and so i should just copy it if i if yeah it's that much better I but think- then
1: in but in monster train though like one of its one of its strengths is that um because of the wild freeness of the way that your build comes together, like you you know with experience, and i haven 't really ever got there, but with experience, I guess you can kind of steer it in a certain way, but sometimes you'll kind of like feel like a little bit like a leaf blown in the wind, and sometimes it blows you to a nice place, and sometimes it doesn't if you don't feel absolutely the architect of 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 that that you you know you do, you know that you could never have got that build, you know, and, and you can't achieve that build every time. And that, that might be a bit freeing.
2: I guess it's hard to imagine what the PvP version is like. Monster Train does have a multiplayer mode, but it's like competitive sort of racing against against each
0: other, trying to, you know, yeah. do
2: better and playing against the same run.
1: Yeah. And that is much more sensible
2: way of doing it. <laughs>
0: I think enjoying losing in the way you describe requires you to be very literate about the game and how it works and what the possibility space is. And it's the kind of thing that like often marks your maturity as a player is I lost, but wow, that was an interesting way to lose. Or that was a really fun thing my opponent did. I I think it's, I'm not going to say impossible because obviously, you know, there are very, very smart people in the world, but it feels sort of like just Difficult in the way that players' experience of game systems work to beam that experience into someone's first couple of hours. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, because it's 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 dependent on that literacy. But you know, who knows? It's, it's an interesting thing to shoot for. But I I wonder how you shoot for it without creating a sandbox that's so complicated that players would then subsequently reduce it to its simplest um components in order to beat each other up.
1: Yeah, I, I yeah, know. I completely agree.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and that's awesome consensus. Thing. What we should. Yeah, exactly. Boom. That was one bonus game agreed upon. <laughs> Put it in the bin. I don't no, Don't. It's nice. Um, so we're going to talk about some news by way of just games that are nice that came out all of a sudden. Uh, one game that came out all of a sudden um, was Inkle's new game, Overboard. Yeah. Tom, I believe this is one of the your your, your half dozen. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the Francis half dozen. Um it's
2: uh this was not announced until it was released. it just it was one of the um uh it was a surprise launch, which I don't think they've done before, right? Inkel? What a concept. Um Yeah. No. I, I always think it's a terrible idea. Don't do that, because <laughs> some people will just miss it. Um but the game is good. Uh it's a murder mystery on a ship where you are the murderer and the murder uh happens in the sort of uh non-interactive intro and the whole game is just how do you get away with it and it's very much an agatha christie um styled mm. thing um it's uh you're on a, a cruise ship and uh there are there's a cast of maybe six characters um and you are looking at a si- a cross-section view of the ship and you choose which place to go to and you can see who's already there and when you go there, you will be able to talk to them with, you know, the standard sort of 80 days type um, dialogue. Um, except that it is massively um, dynamic, I guess. Uh, it's only about 15 minutes to play through one once, but the whole game is about restarting it and figuring out what else you could have done to to not come unstuck. Because like any good murder mystery, there is a moment where a certain character calls you all into the, the dining room and... Um, puts together his case as as to why you killed your husband or you know how that you killed your husband why he thinks you did um and so you get to see all the evidence and which whose testimony um you know really puts the nail in your coffin and then you go back and you do it again you try and make sure that that person either doesn't believe that or isn't in a position to testify to it or you know you can cast Hmm. guilt on them yourself um, which is really cool it's obviously inspired by the last express which i haven't played but I know that um, uh, it's one of John Ingold's favorite games and Mm. um, it is known for uh, being kind of real time where the NPCs are on their own schedule and they're going to go do their things whether you're there or not. And so if you want to catch them at a certain place, you have to be there at a certain time. And that's very much true here as well. Like everyone is is moving around and I've just, uh, I've played it through eight times, I think. Um, And I have successfully got away with murder twice, (laughs) Um, but I haven't... (laughs) Uh, I haven't figured out the real goal, which is to also be able to collect life insurance on your dead husband, <laughs> which you <laughs> which you can't do if the verdict is suicide. And so far, all I've managed to do is cast enough doubt that nobody can prove I'm the murderer and therefore it gets ruled a suicide. Um, but uh, it's clear that if you could frame somebody else or, or if it was ruled an accident, um, then you would uh, get the money as well. And I actually just, after finishing the eighth playthrough i was looking at the achievements because i got a, a bunch of uh, funny ones you can talk to god in this game if you go to like the the prayer room <laughs> at the back you just have a, a conversation with god and it's it's half fourth wall breaking like some of it is in a lot a lot of it's in character but you can all just ask him like hey this person's asking me for money is there any way to get the money <laughs> like is that possible in this game and god will do, will kind of fuck with you and um god hates you by the way because you're a murderer so <laughs> mm. <laughs> really, like, yeah sometimes he, he's just uh uh swears at you and tells you to fuck off. <laughs> um but yeah there's so I got I got some fun achievements for that. I got God to hate poetry, which is a fun achievement to get. Um and I was looking through the other achievements and it, there's a lot more scope for finesse than I realized. I felt like I was you know 60% of the way to sort of having this this completely figured out because all I've got to do I've already cast a lot of guilt on someone else and now I think I've just got to figure out how to make that conclusive. Um but actually the achievements are, are things like um, uh, there's there's some kind of concept of like a perfect playthrough, which means that you get, get away with murder, you get um, the full insurance payout, and you get a man. <laughs> and I'm not sure what it means uh, by that exactly. I have slept with a man in one of my playthroughs, but that didn't count as getting the man, I guess. So maybe I need to uh, work on my romance game. <laughs> mm. but uh, there's that and then there's like do that in five hours and then do that in three hours my playthroughs are all like eight hours long i don't i i can th- i can think of a way you could end it earlier but um the idea that you could do all of that in three hours is is kind of wild so well, what's the time based on is that? it sort of,
1: as you move between rooms that kind of adds yeah, time and yeah each
2: conversation. It's, yeah but it's not actual real time it's it's based on on both movement and action i it, if you stay in one place and you keep doing things there time does progress and other people will uh or uh, walk in. I was I found a way to get into somebody's cabin and I was searching it and I started reading her bad poetry and I read too much of her bad poetry and she came back and caught me. <laughs> <laughs> it was gripping.
1: <laughs> and does the um uh that that dynamic nature, does that mean how open is that dynamic stuff? Like are you able to to go in with a certain intention for a run or do you have to react to kind of specific well, stuff? That's yeah, the
2: weird thing is that um a lot of it is about just not making mistakes and there are lots of mistakes you can make um and so once you figured out not to make those mistakes when you replay you just need to do those same set of actions again and it does have a feature for that where so you can hold a button to fast forward dialogue but you can even have it uh when you're fast forwarding choose the same choice you chose last time at each juncture so you can really fast forward Mm. Um, I'm. It's scary to do because I don't entirely remember what my last playthrough was. Like sometimes I'm doing a fuck around playthrough, and I'll just you know try w- wacky things. And if that's the option, it's going to auto select this time. Then I've ruined my run. Um, and uh, as far as freedom goes, it's I have found it to be um, uh, it, it's really like three choices in each situation, and they are what the the writer thinks you should do. Uh, or they, it's not. They haven't tried to cover every reasonable possibility. Like several times I found myself alone in a room with the only person who is strongly believes I killed my husband and I'm holding a massive, heavy paperweight. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, <laughs> give me the option, give me the option. <laughs> and it doesn't, but you can, you can kill people. Um, there are times that's, that's available. So far, it's only ever come up in a situation where I'd be obviously immediately caught. So I haven't done it, <laughs> but, uh, it's pretty clear to me you could, uh, probably orchestrate a situation where you can do that. Um, and I think it's more about, finding where those possibilities are rather than you know think of any plan and we'll let you do it and we'll find a way for the story to react
1: sounds cool really cool
2: yeah i like it it's um I think i'm they're kind not of the really idea sure how it's going to feel as you like as you keep on replaying it you know at, at this point i have figured out a lot of stuff and i just want to get to the the bits i haven't figured out and i this fast forwarding system's might help with that but i've got to get to the point where i really understand how it works well enough to know that i'm not going to fuck it up by holding that button yeah
1: i don't understand how they've had time to make it because they're making another game at the same time this sort of um side-scrolling story-based game about about scotland or something Mm -hmm. based in the highlands or something isn't it so there's that that they've been showing off lots of screenshots of that seems quite ambitious they it seems like yesterday they did the King Arthur game. that yeah, seems like it only just came out. Yeah, Pen Dragon. That's um, they're busy people. I just don't see how you can just hey, here's an intensely dynamic, um, narrative-driven, um, Who Done It <laughs> opposite Who Done It. We're just going to toss it out. I've, you know announced. Yeah, so Pendragon Dragon
2: same day. Pendragon came out one year ago. Apparently, um, what? Wow. Still though, as of it's impressive. ten days time, yeah. I, I didn't know about this other, this Highlands one. Um,
1: yeah, it's really, lo- it's lovely looking graphics. They've been talking about the, some of the technology they've been using in in making its lovely visuals and the illustrators they've been working with and and, um, and animators mm. and things. Like it seems I quite see, a long
2: way ahead. John was saying recently that like most of their games have taken about six months, except for Heaven's Vault, which took like four and a half years. <laughs> 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 so there's a big variance in how long games take them.
0: My, um uh good pal paul Canavan did a bunch of art for the highlands game oh cool if yes. not the art for the highlands game i'm not sure exactly does, does
2: anyone know what it's called because i can't find it
0: um it's uh, so according to the it, untitled highland game is the last I could uh, find. oh okay um <laughs> it's a lovely day in scotland and you are a beautiful hill <laughs> <laughs> sounds <laughs> nice um uh yeah. I mean the thing is, so I'll say this in favour of the just, just releasing your game, uh when it's just announcing your game when it's done and releasing it approach is it helps them manage the the narrative that would come with, hey, we're actually working on three games at the moment. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. if if you know, there's there's a parallel universe where they announced all this stuff at the same time and maybe, you know, eighteen months ago or a year ago or whatever, we're going like, Hmm, Inkle expand to do three games. That seems that seems ambitious let's see if it works out for them so it's kind of nice to just be like oh yeah oh we did it finished it it's fine actually Here you go do you like it it's nice isn't it bye <laughs> like optimal really
1: it's also over, and also it's on like all everything as well yeah <laughs> simultaneous it's on ios pc oh, really? i assume switch i don't know
2: <laughs> oh it'd be good on ipad i think
1: yeah i did mm-hmm. i was so close to buying it last night um because,
2: yeah, exactly.
0: Nice, 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 nice. Tom, I think there was another game that came out very recently that you is one of the six, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, yeah.
2: I've talked about it before, so I won't go into too much depth. Uh, this is Slipways, which is um, that is the uh, trade empire building uh, strategy game. Um oh, Mass it effect. wasn't Mass Effect Legendary Edition, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's something that I played in in Pico Eight form like years ago. And the Pico 8 version is still available. It's free. You can uh, play that now. It's, it's That's a super low-res, um, low-fire version of it. And now there's a, a glorious HD version um, that has a lot, a lot more meat on its bones. And we had played it. I think maybe Graham might have talked about it as well. Um, there was a demo a while back. Um, and now it's fully out for all. And it's still great. And it now has a feature that I very much appreciate because I partly suggested it, <laughs> which is... Um, now, one of the problems I had with it before was that it's this game about setting up these loops of trade, because you'll have a planet that like it can make iron, but it needs people. And then you have a planet that can make people, but it needs microchips and wheat. And then you've got a place that can make microchips, but it needs iron. And you've got a spot that, okay, well, that first place made iron. So if I loop the, those in a loop that almost they almost satisfy each other, and then I've just got to figure out where I get wheat from, and then I join something else to there, and I create another kind of thing. And you need to know, you need to have an answer for all those questions before you build anything. Because if you leave any of those needs unsatisfied, that planet is unhappy, and you'll bleed happiness every year. And so that becomes kind of paralyzing at, at the start. You sit there just staring at this, this blank map. And you can mouse over each planet to see what your options are. But then once you stop mousing over, you, you no longer see them. And so you've got to hold it all in your head. of Like that planet could be this, this planet could be that, and that planet could be this. Um, and so the feature that Jacob uh, has added uh, in the final version is when you're looking at those options for what you could make that planet into, you can right-click on one to pin it. And then that just becomes like a little label on that planet reminding you what that could be, what you've intended to, to make that. So that oh, people... kind of memory
1: reminder system.
2: Yeah, so that, like, people into Iron Planet, you bookmark that option, you pin it, and then you you look around, okay, where can I get iron from? I can get, also oh, where can I get people from? I can get people from this, but they would need chips and wheat. Okay, where can I get chips from? I'm going to bookmark this, until you have all of them on screen. And also, while you're doing it, it shows preview lines between those planets to sort of, you know, um, tell you, yes, you can connect these or, or look out because these lines would cross and you can't do that. Um and then once that all is in place and looks like it'll work, then you actually, you terraform these planets and you build the trade routes and you spend the money and you you, you progress through time. You burn up some of your uh, your months before the game ends. Um, and yeah, I find that a much nicer way to get into it. It's much more approachable. You don't sort of have to commit to anything um, until you know it's going to work out.
1: Yeah, that does sound good. I did, I've did. i only played the Pico 8 version and um, that was the thing that I found... I mean, I figured that that was the game's challenge, but it probably isn't, is it? It's definitely the thing that I kind of grappled with. kind of.
2: Yeah, the game has like depth to spare, I think. Like once you're yeah. into it, it's all about, um, there's so many different ways you could configure these planets and link them up because uh, you're not just deciding which planets to link to which, it's you decide what the planet is, which two resources should it take and, and produce and each one has a set, set list of options, but sometimes it's like five different options for one planet. Um and so there's masses of depth and, and complexity hidden in there. And then also all the techs that you research let you ch- break all those rules. You know, all these things about like, lines can't cross. Well, there is a tech that lets you cross lines, and but they're expensive. And, you know, the, these two planets are out of range of each other. Well, there's a tech that increases the range. Okay, these two, uh, there's there's like a planet in the way. Well, you can get relays that then let you, you know, make waypoints to kind of get your trade routes to go around all these awkward corners. And so there's so much to think about there you don't really want the challenge to be just like a short-term memory test like did you memorize all of those things it's not like snap
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i should play this it sounds good i've seen you mention it and thought i should play this and i've just done that again the whole process <laughs> <to> it's <up. laughs>
1: and it's another thing you don't have to play on uh, what to talk about on the pod
0: exactly 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 until i do, do you- uh, alex you want to th- throw a game in the pile
1: my game is one of Tom's games. It's to, it's Tom's third game. Oh. <laughs> I don't yeah.
0: I don't own these games. I've just played a little bit. <laughs> well, this is yeah. Welcome to Welcome to Segway Town. And I want if to about to play you must defeat the Segway master himself, Alex.
1: I think it's about some un uh unexplored, not uncharted, unexplored <laughs> to uh which um which is a follow-up to a game that I was really I really really liked um from several years ago um it's a roguelike game um, uh, um which is entirely generated everything that happens um all the um all the, the the dungeons you go into and the overworld and all the quests you go on it's all generated and it all came out of um, Unexplored one, it very much follows from the system that was, was created for that. Um, and that all stemmed from a kind of a, I think a PhD or a sort of a, definitely um, uh, an academic project um, by a Dutch um, a Dutch, uh, academic called Joris Dormans. Um, and Unexplored two is much bigger and much more beautiful and much more polished and dizzyingly complicated in many ways, uh, kind of action RPG kind of, um, game. Um, so, uh, like, uh, and I haven't really played an awful lot about it yet. So I haven't really got a sense of how all the, the quest systems all all, will knit up together, but I was, just to sort of explain kind of, it's, it's kind of take on everything. So you're, um, you are called the wayfarer, um, and you start the game in uh, a place and it's sort of under siege from the empire. I think they are some sort of, uh, uh, mysterious kind of sort of antagonist, which is, hunting for you uh and suddenly appears in this area and fundamentally just chases you out of it and you kind of immediately get hit the the kind of like the world map and you have to then travel to a place called haven which acts as your hub um from which you are taking the staff of yendor to somewhere where you can i think destroy it uh, so it's like a, a quest ring ring quest kind of tolkien thing uh but with the staff of yendor which um to any rogue player will or like roguelike player will recognize as the thing that you have to get from level whatever it is of um nethack um, mm, and all those games that, that followed it um but th- in this game you have it from the start and it allows gives you access to magical powers um from then on the world is i i was very surprised so a lot of um uh, roguelikes have you following you know either you, you know the enemy is encroaching on you and you're kind of choosing a path going away from it um you're kind of reacting to situations and levels that the the game is generating for you um this game um it's like an rpg it's like the the game the generated game is like a sort of um a like in Dungeons and Dragons that's almost pen and paper RPG like your character has certain aptitudes like you might be good at talking to people you might be good at um uh figuring out uh strange uh sort of d- deciphering you know uh, deciphering sort of things you find in the levels or you might be good at fighting or you might be good at sneaking around lots of different aptitudes that you can go from all of which you'll be familiar with um uh um, and you will discover leads on locations in the world that you can go to. Sometimes you'll just hear about them, um, and you can't yet go to them. Sometimes you hear of a quest that, that is, is that is, um, based in these locations. Um, there might be, so I found a, uh, there's a quest to get a magic ring. Also, in the same location, there was another other quest that I could uh, go for when you go to that location. it could be a dungeon or it might be an open open air um, set of places uh, and you walk around it and all of this stuff all of the uh the quests all of the characters you spoke to and all of the the, the world map and all of the locations that you visit they 're all entirely generated um, and the thing with uh unexplored one was that it had which was a much simpler game it was much more of a uh you know a net hack derived roguelike where you were just traveling down through a dungeon but what that had was this amazing generated uh dungeon design um which i think you can see echoes of in a lot of the older um roguelike games um uh but uh it creates these what almost cyclical designs where you go into an area you go you if you, you have a door that's locked in front of you for instance so uh, but the way to the right is is open so you go down that way and you'll kind of go through a few areas and then you'll find um a levitate spell and you go okay i've got a levitate spell fine um and you 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 battle on and eventually you get to a dead end um, the dead end is a chasm and then you realize that that levitate spell was um was actually a, like a almost a, a, a key, and the lock was the chasm because now you can f- use that spell to um float over it, and that path will then often loop back to the f star area and then that will then but but provide you with the key that opens the door from that star area and um something that i interviewed i interviewed choice Tormans ages ago um about how he approached that and um, he mentioned to me that kind of what he really loved in games is when you go into an area of uh, the first time round and it's all a bit unfamiliar and um, you delve deeper into the dungeon and then the dungeon then loops back on itself and you come back into that first area now you know it but also you have more tools you might have a better sword you might have uh, you know might have that key to that open that locked door that you couldn't get through the first time either way you come back to that first area with a with a, uh, like a new sensibility, like you have more confidence, um, you are able to grasp that area in a new way. Um, it feels good. It feels great to be in that sort of finding yourself approaching somewhere familiar in a new way. and um, And that's kind of, all of these levels that that was were in um, unexplored one were like that um constantly sort of mixing up these lock and key style puzzles with um with with kind of these loops of familiarity and then then unfamiliarity as you kind of go out into the dark and yep and that's all present in um that in the what I've played so far of un, un, unexplored two but with much more variety so you're going up mountains and the things that you come across are very different um and you're un- constantly kind of unlocking new abilities and and uh coming up against one of the game's new things um which is a really interesting take on um puzzle and conversation or design I suppose you'd call it um so when you get into conversation with a lot of people um, the game sort of slots as it as kind of a challenge um, and it's this, and it puts you into a little kind of mini game, which is the same game that you'll play if, for example, you're trying to scale um, a wall or unlock uh, a door that you don't have a key for or you are trying to decipher an inscription on a wall that you can't read. Um, and this game has a bunch of tokens Um, um like in a, in a kind of a pile, it shows you on the on the kind of like on the screen, and it then deals you one of those tokens. And depending on depending on the style of the of the the, the challenge that you are taking on, um, you might have had some advantages. Like for instance, it might have put some tokens. I think it might put some tokens into that pile that are beneficial to you because you are looking for a green one, which is a success. Um, and there are failure ones. Um, and every round, it will deal out a different token uh, at random and might be successful it might not be but there's some in the middle ones like tokens that for instance will put some more success tokens into the pile but you will give you um some sort of deficiency like you might lose some health or you might you know alert it gives yourself some sort of one of one of the trackers that sort of depends on how suspicious i can't remember exactly what they are but like for instance something how suspicious people of you are in the area or something like that um and it's like this sort of yeah little kind of mini game where you're kind of playing off your skills against this this um chance game but it's yeah that part, narrating that Alex, as you're going along go on sorry
2: um did that I, so I read a, an article about that system before I played it, and in fact, it's the reason yeah. I played the game is because I was fascinated by this idea. So it's, it's kind of their their replacement for skill checks in D anD D, like rather exactly. than rolling some dice, um, anything you'd normally roll dice for, you play this game with. And the description of it in the Game of Sutra article that I read was uh, gave me a very different impression from what I got from playing it. And in particular, they said that. Um, they wanted it to be like a game unto itself where a player could be good at it or bad at it beyond just whether their character, uh, you know, beyond whether their character has an aptitude for this test or whatever that that adds elements to the game. They also wanted an element of player skill. And they were saying that, you know, for all the token types they've made, even though there are successes and failures and and all this other stuff, there is always a reason uh, to not play a token. You know, even if it sounds like a really good one, there's there's some reason not to play it. And I didn't find that at all. I don't even really understand Mm -hmm. how that's possible because (laughs) you get dealt a token and you either have to play it or pay to redraw. And when you, uh, unless you, you have some free redraws for some other character based reason, but normally you have to pay to redraw. And the, the currency for that is this very rare, precious uh, spark thing that sort yeah. of lets you, you know, override something. And so really you don't have a choice except to play it or cost yourself quite a significant resource. And for things that are just like, you know, adds three successes to the pool, I can't see any eventuality in where that's the, why you would ever not play that. And in fact, yeah. in almost all cases, it was either if it was a failure token, I can't play it. If it's not a failure token, I will play it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't. I. I. Yeah. I, I read that article as well, and I don't really see any of the complexity they talked about there. And I, yeah, like you, I couldn't be good at this game. Cert- like certainly, I mean, I don't know whether it develops as the game as you go through a run, because because yeah, it's you just deal with whatever's in front of you, and if it's a red one you probably want to do what you can to avoid it and if it's a green one yeah, yeah i'll have some of that
2: <laughs> yeah i could the way i could see it working is um so i have i have been dealt like a great success but i didn't see any difference in the effect yeah. it had so the, this scenario that that's can most often is some guards stop you and they say hey we're looking for the wayfarer um is that you and you are the wayfarer but you can try and bluff and um i've got I've got had a success for that, and they they say, "Oh, sorry, I guess it's the wrong person, move on." And I've also had a great success for that, and they say, "Oh, sorry, the wrong person, and move on." So it's not like a, a crit success where it has like you know interesting extra effects. Or at
0: least, I, think I mean, this in is that one.
1: I think in that test I've had um it, I've had a great success, and I think it it reduced the counter. There's some sort of threat overall ah. threat counter thing. I think, but it was very mechanical. Like it's not like you sort of. I felt like, wow. Um, narratively this is really exciting and i'm really pleased with the result of that it's like oh
2: okay yeah (laughs) we should say this is an early access only just launched in early access so it's got a long way to go um yeah and it feels like
1: there's there's quite a lot of rough rough bits and pieces like um i'm really grappling with something that i really don't know how it was gonna so i i went into um this area where there was I, i knew there was a quest for a magic ring And um, I sort of worked my way up up a mountain and at the top um, I came across a door with two plinths on either side, like a plinth on either side. And around this level, there are a number of different statues um, and you can put those statues on, on the plinths. And I just put a statue on one of the plinths and the plinth then retracted into the floor and I thought... Okay, that looks good. Found another statue. Couldn't remember what st- what the name of the statue I first put it on that put on there because I realized that all the statues have got different names. Put that on to the second plinth. That also retracted, and the door remained closed. And I can't get them out. And then I realized that mm-hmm. the real challenge there was to find two of like. I assume it was finding the two like statues. Um uh in the mm. level and only putting those on but i can't undo this and i thought okay well maybe if i come back to the area a little reset nope it's everything which i was pleased <laughs> oh, no. by because you know well you know that means that that you know it's remembering the, the world state and that's good but at the same doesn't time like
2: the whole world persists as well between runs doesn't it like the, does when you it? die, that's what i heard i haven't i didn't see any evidence of this in practice but because uh, I uh, I didn't get to test it, actually, because I played on two different computers, and it, I don't think it has cloud save yet. Um, and, but what I heard is that when you play as a new person, it's like 50 years later or something, and a new hero has come to try the same thing that that old guy oh, died that's doing. What, that um, rings a
1: bell, yeah. And
2: so they, I think the generated world stays the same, and then I hope it kind of ages and changes in some ways. But it would be really funny if your two statues were still locked in there just
0: forever for all characters. <laughs> the previous, previous guy fucked this one forever. <laughs> oh God, God that would well, be a what's great that ring. It's fucked.
2: That would be a great <laughs> game concept. because you you show up after an idiot hero has wrecked all of the puzzles and challenges and stuff, and that's the that's your task is to unfuck all these situations.
1: because I, I, I the, all of the locations I've found. So I, this is my second run, and. I should say that it's, um, it's permadeath, which means that, you know, and you've, you die fairly easily, or at least you can get into fairly chaotic situations, which see you dead fairly easy. Like the combat is um, very similar to, um, unexplored one, which is to say it's not the most nuanced and fun combat. You, when you make a strike, you see it like a half circle or a quarter circle. If you're with a sword or something like a club or something comes, come out from your character, which is fully 3d and and animated, but it isn't, this is not a a kind of like a polished action game and your weapons have cooldowns because it wants your sword to swipe faster, for instance, than a, than a, than a, um, a club. Um, and but it shows the the club cooldown by just flashing it and your it's just frozen on the screen you know your your the, the arm is frozen on the screen until it's until the cooldown's over it does not feel that good and it very much rewards pay careful play like go taking a swipe moving back out of range coming in when you're ready you've got a sword that you can hold up all the time as well uh, sorry shield that you can hold up all the time as well i mean there's lots of detail to it so you can got daggers that you can throw there's bows and arrows and there are kind of various potions and things that kind of give you various kind of advantages and things there's a, there's a lot there but it's not you don't feel. I think it, it doesn't ever want you to feel like a all murdering kind of hero. I think it wants you to feel things could turn on you, and you are you can be swamped by enemies and that kind of thing. It's um, but I I, I liked that about un, un unexplored one, and um, I'm pleased to see that that fundamental is still here. Um, but like lots of other aspects of it are much more polished. Like the character design and the, just the world is really pretty like the Looks and strange nice. and weird and like lots of pastel colors but, and the characters and the kind of like the races that you that you play as just norm weird kind of yeah weird fantasy stuff which is they which look is like really robots nice. to me in a fun yeah.
2: way like like if you if you made like a sort of uh buddy uh, comedy about two mismatched robots where one's really tall and gawky and the other's really round and, and fat. That, yeah. that's what the two species look like to me yeah.
1: i think the other, i was going to say yeah about the, the the permadeath so i in my i you know my second run i i'm not seeing any of the locations that i came across on the, my first run but at the same time i may just not have heard about those particular places yet but i'm so i'm in finding places that i hadn't been to before i just don't know maybe i've discovered them somehow because it seems Mm. very open the way that you kind of and there are lots of places i can't visit yet because i haven't got enough information on how i'd go to them like traveling across the map is uh you see your character kind of making the journey you have an idea of the, the the threats that are on the way there are items that can mitigate various problems like sort of wearing a certain like Kind of walking boots or something like that will deal with certain um, threats and things. And occasionally you'll get dumped into a level um, because it's some sort of hazard, and there'll be enemies on it. Or sometimes not enemies, and you know there'll be you know bonuses, and you can kind of there'll be resources to find on them. You can camp to recoup health. There are loads of kind of it's incredible. There's so much going on in this game, and that's like the thing I'm grappling with at the moment. Like I just don't really understand what i'm doing or why or anything there's so many things i could focus on but you know you you know you can easily get wounded which will slow you down and make you strike um slower it takes three in-game days to to heal from you can get winded you can get oh i don't know i, I got a cold i got wet I, all these different stages of effects which um um which which you know, I, I like, I'm excited by the idea of that that, that depth to the, the, the role playing. But um, but the thing I what I really want to ask you, Tom, is um, the mission design or the quest design. Like there's, I don't know, how have you got on with that? Because I thought there might be some ideas and things that you may have considered when you were making um, Heat Signature, that kind of dynamic kind of quest design thing in open worlds design
2: um it's hard to judge at the moment because i haven't got very far in it uh and i because it is early access and because it's a massively complicated game uh i'm hitting a lot of brick walls that uh it's hard to tell whether i'm misplaying or whether the sort of th- systems aren't quite there yet like i got given a quest sounds a bit like your one with the ring on the mountain it might not have been a ring but some kind of legendary item is in this this mountain range and i think i paid for that tip in a in a village and then I also got another quest that was also in the same mountain range. And I was really excited to go to this mountain range. So I, I you know, traveled to the next node in that direction. And then I traveled to the next node in that direction. And my boots wore out or whatever. And I repaired my boots and traveled to the next node in that direction. And then I just couldn't go any further in that direction. And so I kind of, okay, well maybe it's too steep or something. So I went south and then uh, kept doing that. And I just couldn't find any way into this mountain range ever. I just, I died trying to ever get in there. And it wasn't clear to me, like, okay, yeah. if mountains are impassable, that's, if some kinds of mountains are impossible or whatever, that's fine. But I kind of need to be able to see that on the map before I invest masses in going in that direction, just to find, you know, with no explanation, that I, I can't progress. I assume um, that was a
1: knowledge thing that there's someone that will tell you about the route. I got the feeling that, that it, it's, that's the way that stuff worked. I'm not really, I'm not sure about that though.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Again, it, there's just to know that there is some kind of barrier there is, is, uh, information that would be nice to have. Cause I can move through yeah. mountains and other situations, um, and I had the knowledge of where these places are themselves. Um, and so, yeah, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a quest through. <laughs> um, uh, at least nothing that, that was, you know, beyond the trivial stuff. Um, and the stuff I've been given all sounds, it it does sound generated. It's not sort of going to fool you to think that uh, it's a fully handwritten um, RPG. Um, yeah. So it remains to be seen how well that stuff kind of clicks together once once you've been through the of motions a few times and had that feedback into you know actually use that magical ring to then do another quest and um whether that stuff makes it pay off so far it hasn't really paid off for me and to be honest the whole i because it's quite janky or i don't understand it <laughs> one of the two um i uh, have died uh, i guess only twice but both times it is presented like a like a full rpg like you go through even if you skip the tutorial, you start as you say in that kind of um, sanctuary area that then has a kind of scripted event that you have to flee this 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 entity and and uh, run out of it as it falls apart. And then there's the journey to the the main town. and There's all this stuff at the start that's kind of just you're going to do it the same every time, basically. Which makes sense at the start of like Skyrim, you know, the 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 cart ride to the to the gallows and stuff. At the start of a 150 hour RPG, it makes sense to have um, some story based introduction that you just have to go through. But in this, which is death, at least for me, has been very roguelike esque in that it comes out of nowhere and (laughs) uh, my whole run is completely over with no no opportunity for me to kind of react or um, or see how I could have avoided it. And then when that's also, you know, the end of multiple hours of of not just that it's been multiple hours of play, but that I'm really early on in in my journey as a character. Like I say, I didn't really complete any quests. I was really just getting started. I put all this time and investment in it. And then just I was in some area with some like gas vent things and they were on weird H1 was on a different kind of timer. And some of the timers, I just couldn't see any way to find a safe space to get through them. And they were blocking my way to progress. So I had to get through them. And there were just no plants anywhere, no like healing stuff that I could access anywhere. And so I just ran out of health doing that. And that was the end of my run. And that was a real oh, downer.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Cause I think it, I think that it doesn't want you to see that start sequence very much. I get, because the quest list is, it's very long. <laughs> like this is, and that's just the, the, the critical quest stuff to get to do the main, you know, the main line stuff and i don't and there's so much of it and that gets wiped completely if on death i don't know mm. exactly what you what persists between i know that the in the haven area there are two buildings um and one of them has a vault that you can store certain really valuable items so that you can kind of pick them up on another run oh yeah but Yeah, I think that you're meant to be surviving for a long time. And yeah, I mean, the only thing that has kept me alive is stopping going fast through areas and just doing a lot of, there's a full stealth system in it as well. So doing a lot of stealth, looking for traps and things, because I keep getting bound by kind of explosive traps.
2: That was one I didn't, um, I invested in stealth, obviously, um, (laughs) and I was uh, pretty good at it. And so I could sneak past a lot of these encounters. And after I did, I was always thinking, "Was that actually a good thing to do? Like, did I, do you want to avoid combat? Because, like, presumably get experience like I don't think that there's, there's an XP system.
1: I don't think there's an XP system.
2: Really? No. So I think you're good. So, but I guess I mean you're going to get something for defeating enemies, right?
1: <laughs> I think that they're just.
2: I mean, I, I don't
1: know. I don't know. It certainly wasn't particularly important in in Unexplored One.
2: So maybe it is good to sneak past everything. I was doing that as much as I could, um, but it felt weird just to sort of dodge content basically because it's, <laughs> you know, it's not a stealth game. It's the Avoiding people is yeah. really just, is quite rote. And so just doing that to every encounter was weird. And then I just hit a, this is my other life where I died. Um, I fought a couple of nasty enemies and then moved on a bit. And then there was just like 16 of them and a the thing that spawns them and just got completely swamped. I wasn't even, you know, within... Uh, one percent of being able to survive that encounter, and i don't know why I was like i didn't i hadn't knowingly taken on any risky quest or anything. I was just trying to travel somewhere and uh that happened so again it's it's like when death can be that sudden and that uh, sort of inescapable it's hard to get invested again
1: yeah, and I think that's the that's the kind of that's the thing that makes me a little nervous about this game where it comes from a pedigree of fairly short session single sessions. Mm. games you know roguelikes you know the 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 classic roguelikes where as run will will, well they often take a long time if you're good at them you know an hour or something but this wants you to put you on a full world spanning um you know quest line with vast amounts of character development and permanent death and you know and it's the sort of game where you know when you've got an hour-long session you know, and and if you don't know the system, you know, if you start playing Brogue or something and you don't know the system, you're going to die very, very soon, but you're not going to mind because it only took you five, 10 minutes. But mm-hmm. in this one, yeah, that would be very frustrating. And especially if you get as far as kind of an hour in or two hours in, three hours in, feel you at the start of a journey and then plop, you're out. Especially yeah. when it's down to level design.
2: Yeah, stuff line to tread.
1: I felt I'm um, just the last thing I wanted to say was some um, some of the the I mean the the way that the dungeons are designed or like generated they um there's a lot more obfuscation of lock and key um like and the the way that you succeed at some of the puzzles generated puzzles are less clear and I've wandered around quite a lot just not understanding how to succeed until i realized that oh okay i didn't realize you know the way that you interact with certain things like this the magic system um usually there's like a magical tree in an area and as long as you stand within a certain radius of that tree um you can use the spell that it gives so it might sort of send um roots out of the ground kind of destroying things in the way or it might shoot out a kind of magical light that when it um when it pops out of existence you will blink into that location. Um sort of that which which allows you to get across kind of chasms and things like that. Um I've found those slightly odd and difficult to pass. I suppose, you know, that's the learning thing more than anything else. But because Unexplored one was based on a template which is much more um familiar. Um it, I found it a lot more readable and a lot more accessible as a result.
2: Hmm. the thing i wanted to say actually about the the skill check system um uh i was kind of you know uh explaining why it didn't live up to what i thought it was going to be based on this article but i should say actually it's it's i quite like it as a system it's better than rolling dice and in particular that one of the problems they're trying to solve is that rolling dice in a video game doesn't feel like you're doing the thing and when you fail it doesn't feel like your fault and it doesn't Players are much less accepting of, of their fate in that scenario than they are in real D and D, where you physically roll the dice, um, and people obviously you know have outsized reactions to their failure or success. But it's a fun social thing, and it's um, actually probably the social context is is half the battle there. Um, and so I think uh, they it's a really good problem to solve, and that's kind of half the the battle with with game design is knowing what problem you're trying to solve. And I think they've they're definitely going down the right um path with that like that is the problem you need to fix um or if you have a great solution to that then a whole lot about making a generated rpg uh becomes way more viable and way more fun and i don't know if this system is gonna whether it just needs some tweaks for me to get what it is that they were going for with it um but right now it kind of feels like i want i would want just like a more in-depth version they talk in that article about um uh, you know we wanted something that was more in, involved than dice rolls but less involved than deck builder, and my brain immediately went to, but what if you did make a deck builder? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> everything should be a deck builder, did he consider that <laughs> yeah, I completely agree I, I
1: i yeah i i've 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 welcomed the checks whenever they've come because it yeah I'm doing something, and also it contextualizes what you're doing kind of as you go along, sort of and you know like it is generic lines generally that you're seeing kind of spooling out as you kind of make each view as each option pulls out um but seeing that it grounds it a bit more as well that it sort of it makes you feel a bit more involved
2: yeah
0: what have you been playing chris i have been playing a very different game to this in every conceivable way i think um so this will be a bit of an abrupt change in tone, but uh, I've played the first uh, couple of levels of, and a few hours of, uh, Necromunda Hired Gun.
1: Oh! um,
0: oh. Because I'm going to turn, apparently, my weekly-ish appearance on this podcast into um, what All Right Warhammer game have you played lately, um, apparently. (laughs) And uh, Hired Gun is interesting, um, because... um, it's, well, I'll say up front, it's not amazing. Um I think it's deeply in that kind of, you know, five, six out of ten Warhammer territory at the moment. I have this, the sense that it may have been released a little bit before it was fully cooked. Um, But it's also completely not the game I thought it was going to be either. So this is a first-person shooter set in the Necromunda setting, which is sort of beloved Games Workshop uh property that goes back to you know, uh, the deepest uh, 90s in its sensibility, and that's going to be important. So hold on to that. Um, uh, Sort of, you know, uh, gang war in the underhive in one of the kind of the the Imperium's kind of uh, industrial uh, uh, sort of mega city planet. And it's a very vivid setting and not one that's had an enormous amount of attention in games despite being perfect for it. And this is um, easily the most, and I'll say this upfront: it's easily the most striking rendition of that setting I have seen, uh, probably outside of the tabletop game itself. And it's also probably actually one of the most visually striking 40k games I've ever seen, generally mm. speaking. Like the, um, it's you know it's fairly high fidelity in its own way, um, but also the environments absolutely massive and quite inventive. Like they draw from you know 40 qu- classic kind of 40k environment design in a lot of ways but then there's a lot of kind of original thought applied to it and uh, you fight uh, in the game across truly fucking huge like serious sam scale chunks of kind of cavernous underhive um like through massive industrial complexes or across like a you know, 50 foot tall trench network that is itself made out of compressed cubes of like manufacturing off waste, um, which makes it look like a block level, even though it's not, which is both ugly and kind of clever at the same time. Um, you fight on a massive, a, a massive train, like I'm going to say a big train, like the biggest train you've ever seen. And you might think you can imagine an extremely big train. It's an extremely fucking big train. The front, the front of the train, the engine bit, um, would is like it's as big as the final boss battle arena from the end of the second Machine Games Wolfenstein game. I only think that because <laughs> that is a big level, and the the front of the train is that size, like it's genuinely massive. But what's really interesting about it is the the kind of the, the overall theme is you are a bounty hunter, like an independent operator, not attached to any of the gangs and you're a hired gun, if you will, and you're carving out a life for yourself uh, in the underhive and getting involved in various scrapes. And, you know, there is a hub level that you return to between missions um, where you da- delve into some pretty uh, involved, and I'll get into whether that's a good thing or not, like RPG systems to do with ing- upgrading your own sort of bionics, upgrading your weapons in granular detail, another kind of ways to progress. Um, and then you go back out, you pick a, pick a mission and you go back out and and you do it again. The thing that surprised me about it, all of that I was aware of, and there are ways in which you can feel the kind of, um, the influence of something like cyberpunk in its plot, actually, initially in some ways, but also just, um, in, um, you know, that Necromunda has, is in some ways GW cyberpunk setting in a bunch of ways. And so there's always gonna be some thematic overlaps, um. And I sort of, I think initially from the initial trailers, maybe not the more in-depth gameplay trailers, but from the initial look, mistook it for a first-person shooter RPG, basically, like Cyberpunk, like any other game that you kind of expect to fit this formula, maybe like a Borderlands. Um, And it has some of those elements, but its fundamental influence really is New Doom, which I wasn't really expecting. Mm -hmm. And going back a little bit further from there, Bulletstorm, which is a game that I think we all collectively stopped talking about in about twenty thirteen, <laughs> uh, but was everyone talked about it for a bit. Um, and like I say, Serious Sam, uh, these very, very highly mobile nineties style shooters, and it is the like, um, in some ways, for its through a combination of its successes and its failures, it manages to feel more profoundly nineties than Doom and Doom Eternal did because it's also a warhammer thing (laughs) like and because it's set in these kind of like almost too large ugly striking environments and so you are extremely extremely quick and most enemies die almost instantly and you can run double jump air dash grapple wall run and slide while shooting you can chain all these things together Um, you get a lot of these abilities piled on you quite quickly and you just do the thing that makes it not overwhelming is the fact it's also quite easy, at least on the normal difficulty that I'm playing on. So you're kind of blasting through hordes and hordes and hordes and hordes of gangs, um, kind of really tearing through the environment, uh, sort of, you know, performing Doom-style melee takedowns, which are quite brutal in some cases, um, to get like health pickups that kind of spring out of the bodies of the people you're slaying, kind of you end up with so much ammo that that's never that's never an issue and you're just kind of like tearing around the levels doing all of this stuff and it's a really weird mix of things I, i am so one thing i should put at the top is it's very janky um you know the doom comparison i think is obviously what they're aiming for but it doesn't have anywhere near doom's level of polish um or kind of finesse and that means a ton of things. It means that on uh, a just on a kind of bugs and level, it means that animations are kind of stiff and a bit awkward. Often those takedown animations misalign with the enemy you're actually killing. So you'll be stabbing the air furiously in a particular direction as a man a few feet away like has his arms fall off. Um <laughs> which I believe is heresy. Um and um you know, there's all this stuff that does uh, it quite held together. And also I think I think it what it made me appreciate is how much work the Doom team did to make a game that fast legible. Yeah. Um a game this fast is actually quite a bad mix for a game that is also set in quite dark atmospheric environments with enemies that are themselves like human sized and relatively ordinary looking people, because you do lose them. You lose them against the environment. You know, you lose them, in, in, you know, sort of, in you know, you, you kind of rely on their barks to kind of tell you um, where they are. I, and I'll talk about barks in two different contexts. One is it's kind of cool to me that half the people from Necromander are from Yorkshire. I never really thought about that. That's 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 the accent they've gone with. That's the Necromander <laughs> accent. Go for it. Um <laughs> um if you play as that you have a choice of your your character at the beginning of the game from like it's not like full character customization but you pick a portrait and that affects who you are and um like i just i wasn't expecting like the um the 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 lady who plays the the female version of the lead just goes like full angry like stark basically like you know full-on giving it your all when you are a kind of angry northern lord in an episode of game of thrones it's very it's very good um um uh, in that regard it's good warhammer acting to make it coming back to you i mean it's it's ropey and a lot of the performances are on the edge of like hmm, but like um that at least is kind of half of this territory and, and has its own charm um the other reason barks are important is if you can't find enemies you can press c to withdraw a kind of uh Cyber rat themed squeaky toy which summons your mastiff, a big dog that puffs into existence in a puff of like dog smoke and immediately highlights all the enemies in the environment that you're in. And then you can press C again for the dog to go kill people, I think. And it does kind of just goes and kind of does stuff. And occasionally you'll see it leap back into the air and vanish. And it's very funny when that happens. Um. <laughs> And is it a
1: magical dog? Is it like a no, ball well, dog or is it meant I'll, to just I'll live get in the shadows? There. Okay. I'll
0: get there. I think it's supposed to be in the shadows. But so, And the game is divided into these pretty big levels, which are where you get these kind of impressive environments from, which take me 20, 30 minutes to complete and have like a story that runs through them. Uh, loosely speaking, it's, it is ropey. Um, and bonus missions, which you can go on at almost any time. Uh, between levels once you've beaten a level once you can kind of go back to chunks of its environment because they tend to be carved up into arenas to do like a short level to get money to reinvest in your gear and your stuff back at the main level and um there's something in that loop i think that the canon should work with a game with kind of like arcade fundamentals like play a long level play a short level get points upgrade yourself that that seems like a solid loop uh, it's also very funny to me that as you're doing the side missions you're doing um missions for the various factions of Necromunda, the various gangs and things. And that makes sense. They're the ones posting the jobs on the board, but they've cast that net a little bit too wide. And maybe that, that this will only be funny to people who give a shit about Warhammer, but you expect to see like the various, you know, uh, Necromunda gangs listed as potential clients, like um, the Eshers or the Goliaths or the Orlocks or whatever, but also listed are like the Helot Chaos Cult, And the gene stealer cultists. And, and it's like, why are they posting jobs on the jobs board? (laughs) Like, could you overthrow the spire, please? So that the, (laughs) so that the great devourer will come and eat us. We'll pay you 2000 credits, which you can use to buy a a red dot site. (laughs) You're like, okay. All right. Oh, great. Thanks. I didn't say, think you would say yes. We're literally tyrannids.
1: It kind of takes um. the I mean they are in like obviously they are in, in Necromunda, but like yeah, it takes the sort of like the rosters kind of rather literally, it you know, mm. doesn't make any sense. <laughs>
0: um but it is like I say, like it's a very kind of evocative um presentation of that setting. Um, um uh, but I think like I, I think it is I think it is a little too janky to recommend. And and also I think I think it, it is a strange match of game to maybe like what people want from that setting the way i would describe it is it feels like you are playing necromunda but you are a dickhead who has convinced their friend to let them play as their like completely overpowered imperial assassin and is just tearing through everybody like with no kind of no stakes which which is a strange match for the setting mm. because necromunda the game the tabletop game is very much about you know these skirmish games where consequences for success and failure are very granular where you know a straight a, a bullet can send someone spiraling off a gantry way and falling down the floor and then you know anything some some scrape they're kind of sandbox games in that regard all about the kind of painful consequences of failure for your little gang trying to eke out a living in a very lethal environment so as, as a gang kind
1: of, you're kind of normal people as well and you're not firing relative kind of, you're fighting firing Auto rifles and things. like in general, yeah. Like, yeah, you're playing, you're firing auto rifles rather than you know, like the sorts of things that space marines fire and
0: whatever, right? Like, I mean, it, it's something in and like, modern Necromunda, the tabletop game has definitely moved the power level up a little bit, but there's still a sense that I would say power level is not really the important thing. The important thing is the sense of danger that comes yeah. with being in that environment, regardless of how good your weapons are. And this really doesn't have that. And I think the most telling thing is like. I think, you know, Necromat the tabletop game cares very much if you fall off something. Um, This is a game without fall damage. You just fling yourself into the air with like a grapple hook that will take you, you know, 30 meters in the air at a zip, and then you'll double jump, and then you'll dash, and you're literally flying at this point. And you'll use some augmetic. you've got to slow down time, pull out a sniper rifle and sniper leaping Ogryn that's jumping through the air to try and intercept you. And you're basically a superhero. And it's kind of fun, like that. You know, there, I would say there aren't enough FPSs that just go for it and let you kind of have fun and be creative and move and, and and be free to kind of take on combat to your own way. But, um, and that's that's the reason that I I don't dislike the game. But the the the, the other side of it though is like this is a almost in some ways a weird universe, a weird situation to put that kind of gameplay in because I think there'll be a lot of people who are attracted to the idea of an Ekremander game because they love the setting, and it's not necessarily the best way to see it at 80 miles an hour, um, even though the environments are great. Uh, and I think, I, I think it, it does look good, and it feels good as well. Like, I think some of the shooting is, is fun. I um, find it really
1: interesting that it's by um, Strumond Studio mm-hmm. who, um, who made I, Cyber, Divine Cybermancy, which was yeah. uh, <laughs> incredibly uh, ambitious and very janky. As far I never played it. Did you play it?
0: I, I did, yeah. Um, I think I think that, yeah, and you can see that legacy because it is janky. Um, and it's interesting where we will or won't forgive jank. I think jank in service of like an immersive RPG experience is often forgiven because people really want that sense of connection to the world. And Hired Gun isn't actually interested in giving you that sense of connection to the world because he wants you to skate through the world at 100 miles an hour while, you know, eviscerating hordes of dudes. And so in that context, the jank doesn't feel as forgivable because it's not in pursuit of something that i want specifically from this world um but and at the same time i think it's also lend them to there's um there's a deep well of customization here um and building and customizing your own gun sounds and and looks pretty cool like you can you really customize all the different bits you can add and remove parts you can change the way it looks and and name your gun which feels is probably the most decremental feeling thing in it in some ways um but the question is should you do that should you care like the actual roster of weapons is not that high but you'll find multiple versions of the same guns with slightly different stats um and rarities which encourages you to compare but we're talking about differences of percentages on things like crit chance. And like this gun has a 3% chance to cause an enemy to drop 50 P when they die and stuff like that. (laughs) And it's like, it feels like there's, there's sort of mechanics there, but I'm not sure what's what purpose they actually serve. So in the early part of the game, um, I have found myself investing purely in making those systems go away faster um which is oh, i always find it fascinating when developers give you this option one of the things you can invest in is your own cybernetics and they're very granular and, and divided among the various parts of your body including your brain and one or your head and one of the things you can invest in in your head is your voice and if you upgrade your voice uh, every time you upgrade your voice you may gain 30 percent more money for doing secondary missions which means that every time I every, I reinvest all my money in becoming more mellifluous, so that I can convince tyrannids <laughs> to give me more money, basically. <laughs> and this scales up to I think about like one hundred and fifty percent over what you'd normally get. At which point, because because money is really its only main current, it's only real main way of gating your power level. Or like level gives you access to stuff, and the money lets you buy it. Um, I just I've just put all my points into, um, getting more points, and it turns out that's a good use you of points. <laughs> um, so it's the fact that, that it doesn't have a point and that's pointless and therefore a shame. Um, <laughs> um, and so the, all of it, like it doesn't quite hold together in that regard. And like I say, it's sort of, it's ambitions to be something more immersive, fall flat, even as I do enjoy being in those in spaces. And so it's the kind of thing that I would find myself like maybe, recommending someone play if they loved the setting and they had an opportunity to probably not... I hate recommending people not pay for price things because it's very hard to track value, but it, it doesn't feel like the kind of experience that you'd be super glad you paid that you're good for, because it did. But it feels like the kind of thing that, particularly with patches and time, um, could grow into something quite fun. I found myself testing it, like testing it in the way that for the, for this, the kind of cult jank not gene the cult jank just cult jank that ultimately makes games beloved like things in that kind of earth defense force kind of realm like is it that or is it just a bit ropey and i think it's probably just a bit ropey but i could i could see a future for it where i think with a bit of polish and greater clarity it kind of finds an identity for itself i did want to finally mention one other thing about it though which i think is a really weird decision they've made and probably the most arresting um, uh, off-putting decision I've maybe unintentionally faced in a game for a while so beginning of the game you already have tons of cybernetics you uh and then you there's a there's a mishap at the start a deadly mishap that leads you getting more cybernetics that kind of brings you into the story proper that's all fine and that means that you go to the the, the rogue doc who kind of fits out your cybernetics and stuff um, and luckily in that initial mishap, your trusty dog also survives. Your Mastiff also survives and is there and you can pet them in the, in the hub area and so on. You also have the option to buy cybernetics for your dog. Uh It's heads, it's arms, uh, it's arms, legs. <laughs> Hang on a minute. I know where a dog is. Shut up. Shut up, Alex. <laughs> um, you know, like you can upgrade your dog in a lot of ways. I don't know why, you would do this because your dog is on a cooldown and like, why am I going to invest in slightly more armor for a dog I only see every three minutes? Maybe that's me being churlish, I don't know. But the point is, this is what weirds me out about it, and I appreciate we are in the grim darkness of the far future here, but, but your dog is fine, as far as I can tell, largely indestructible, and fully 100% organic dog at the beginning of the game. You have to pay money to willingly replace parts of your dog with robot parts of your dog to create a cybermastiff, which is a thing in Necromunda, which is, is obviously becoming. And so I just haven't I mean, even notwithstanding the 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 choice to invest money and in making more money, um I don't know I can't quite bring myself to tell the doctor, Yeah, please, please give my dog wheels or whatever. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like I mean, it, it feels weird to me. Like, I think I would be so much more comfortable with it if they established at the beginning of the game you have a cyber dog. That choice is out of your hands. This is how you would upgrade your cyber dog. But taking that kind of decision on, a do- on putting the decision in my hands to make that choice on my dog's behalf, I think that's of greater ethical complexity than I'm willing to take on. <laughs> in a That's Warhammer too dark, game. even for the grim future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> of all the
1: things, of all the things to moan about in that world.
2: <laughs> Do you remember how um, Prey did this whole thing of like, you can take on this alien technology, um, but at some point the game is going to start like judging you for it and the, the security systems are going to turn on you if there's too much alien in your body maybe one day your dog will have to go through a metal detector and because you've <laughs> never put any cybernetics in him he'll be fine mm.
0: right <laughs> you get a yeah. secret good ending or like or, it'll be, or it'll get a bad ending because um i didn't turn him into a rad cyber dog when i had the opportunity to i just don't know <laughs> but well, out of interest
1: what what is the dog's role like is it some sort of um smart bomb style thing yeah what
0: do you need it for you don't um the this is the thing so it's useful because it's hard to find enemies in the big levels and <sighs> there's another thing that he's so it's useful it's, it's actually kind of useful it doesn't it's so janky. it doesn't feel quite intended but like you get these enemies, like boss enemies, and the whole level will end when you kill them because maybe it's a secondary mission and that's your goal, right? You go kill the Escher boss or whatever. And you can tell that these particular, like, boss enemies have shields, and if it's a blue shield then it's like a regular enemy, and if it's a gold shield then it will take fucking ages. And one of the, one of the reasons it's a little janky is like most enemies die so quickly and then you hit the bullet sponges that have the shields or the armor or whatever. And there's like this set sweet spot. When, when an enemy doesn't have a shield, you can use a melee takedown if you can get to them quickly. And you can get everywhere quickly because you're fucking super Batman. Um, and so um, I think the dog can only do takedowns on people if they don't have shields either. And so I was fighting a, a woman with a golden shield and a big train um, in this computer game. And I was shooting at her and waiting and shooting and waiting and running away and regenning and finding more health and shooting her and waiting... And then I sort of had, did an exploratory summon of the dog and it didn't do anything. And I was shooting away the, and she just started running away. And sometimes certain enemies will just fucking run and the levels are massive. And she's, she's running up this like spiral staircase. Um, and um, I just grapple up the other way and I'm sort of peppering her with shots. And at some point, one of my peppered shots probably clicked off the last pip of shield that she had. And I just heard this bark of someone saying, like, you won't end me, Bounty Hunter. And then just the dog killed her because she <laughs> entered into, like, dog takedown territory. And that felt like, it felt, I, I don't know if it's intended to work that way, that you can, like, prime the takedown with the dog and then whittle the rest of the shield off and the dog will go do it. That felt cool. That made me feel like a Bounty Hunter, I suppose. But then it was also weird because I was getting shot and then I stopped taking damage and the entire level, very slowly faded to black because I hadn't realized she was the person I'd have to kill to end the level. <laughs> it's that kind of game it's it's i you know uh it's uh oh five but um (laughs) but like you know um uh, (laughs) yeah tom i feel like we're three games down (laughs) <laughs> yes, three. I got. Three re- I got real quick thoughts on
2: on some uh, cool, cool, cool. So, like Mass Effect Legendary Edition, uh, just I have started it and I'm playing obviously Mass Effect One, um, and I'm doing the eat your vegetables thing of actually making different choices to try and more fully explore the game. And it's uh, a mistake. Don't do oh. it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, cave like cave to your guilty impulses. Do the same thing. Make the good choices again, because turns out there's a reason you're making those choices, and it's because they're the right ones. <laughs> so i i'm playing as a male shepherd and i I know a lot of people who play male shepherd first and uh liked it um i think you have to play it first <laughs> if you're going to play it because if you've already played a female shepherd then there are just so many lines where the, the performance is like fine but you flash back to jennifer hale's performance thinking god she really sold that line she really made this moment like magical in a way that it's really not right now um and i'm a vanguard which i did that's class i picked in later mass effects but in mass effect one i I was an infiltrator the first time um and that lets you use a sniper rifle which if it kills something in one hit that kind of feels pretty good in any game um Hmm. and vanguard just doesn't have that kind of punch i can use pistols and shotguns so i don't really have any good long range options and the combat mass effect one i i gather they've made some improvements to it but it's still really unsatisfying um and in fact i would say it's less satisfying now playing as a bad class in the revised version than it was playing as a good class in the in the original version um cuz i i remember having an alright time with it first time through but it's really dragging now and i i just had to turn it down to casual cuz i just want the combat to go away um and i also i went for that class cuz it had like f- throw of the biotic power which i was i was picturing force throw in the jedi knight games which is really fun and it's not really like that. And it's the targeting system for biotic abilities in Mass Effect One is really ropey. And they just kind of you can aim them on the bit of someone who's poking out of cover, and then the targeting system will just kind of have it hit the cover instead. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of deeply unsatisfying. So that's just a PSA: <laughs> play Mass Effect One <laughs> exactly as you did the first time
0: <laughs> if you liked it. It's funny, um, that, means, that means male shepherd infiltrator for me. So I'm, I'm one, I'm, I'm one, oh, one right. in terms of mistakes versus not, apparently. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I think Mass Effect 2, I think maybe this will start paying off then. Because um, part of the reason I'm a male shepherd is, is I also wanted uh, to be able to try some of the romance options that were, weren't available to me as a female shepherd. Mm. And uh, the combat in, in Mass Effect 2, I remember being a lot better. And so from then on, like being more experimental
0: classes or. Yeah, off, Inver- they they figure out vanguards as well because you get the dash. Yeah,
2: like the- yeah. I actually did play Vanguard in Mass Effect Two the first time, so I'll have to change that decision as well now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll be infiltrator, and maybe they suck in Mass Effect Two. They're fine. How about a soldier? Just have a gun. Oh god, <laughs> gun! I can't even imagine. Gun
0: gun possessor.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's my superpower. Is I own many guns. Um. And then what else? Oh yeah, Subnautica below zero. Uh, but I'm pretty early on in it, but it just reminded me how fucking good Subnautica is. Like that, um, especially going back to the start, that feeling of of mm. being in this massive hostile world and just trying to eke out your little corner of safety. You know, splashing around in the shallows and and gathering enough resources just to get a bigger O2 tank and just to get the sea glide, that little propeller thing. Um, That's you know not a vehicle, and how big a deal even that was back then. I'd forgotten all of that stuff, and it's, it was really fun to go through that that arc again. I've now got a C truck, which is the equivalent to the C moth. Um, I don't really know what's different about it. I think it might be more expandable. I think you can like bolt stuff onto it, maybe. Um, but I haven't got far enough to do that. And uh, yeah, that's just a really good game. This new one is basically the same. It's colder. <laughs> there hasn't been a lot of. Um, it's felt very similar in terms of you know um, the vibe and and what your concerns are moment to moment and the satisfaction of resource gathering and trying
0: to make it all home for yourself. Yeah, I know Pep enjoyed the time she spent with it. I think she's finished it now.
2: Yeah, it just came out of early access like in
0: the last couple of weeks, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she waited until it was primed and ready. But yeah, and then I think devoured it very quickly. But I like I think the I'll... penguin. <laughs> yeah, they, those are kind of freaky. Once you get up
2: close, they look really cute, and you rush over to them and you're like, "Wow, there's just a lot of eyes here." <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you uh, should play. One should play all of the 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 first one first, shouldn't? That, I've seen that advice. Oh, should you? Because I didn't. <laughs> okay,
2: I was. I got pretty deep into Subnautica One, but um, I. I, I felt like the, the kind of some plot threads were coming to a head, but I had to go really, really deep with the Cyclops with the maximum depth upgrade module, and it was a very scary place. And I just kind of lost my my guts for it. <laughs> 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 I, uh, I didn't. I didn't make a decision to stop playing. I just after the last time I stopped playing, I was fully intending to return, and then I just never. The prospect of returning became this quite daunting thing to go back into that. You know, the scary place. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But maybe it's just sort thing. of knowing, yeah, knowing what um, where that game went is probably enough.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that definitely there's there's some things in this that would have been a big surprise if I hadn't got as far as I did in Subnautica 1. And for that reason, it hasn't had quite the same wow factor that the first one did, kind of inevitably. Like, you know, there's so much in Subnautica 1 that I just had no idea was in the game at all. Yeah. And the last one is Grifflands, which is also another recent early access graduate um Mm. uh been in early access for god it must be two years i've been playing it for so long maybe actually i think i might have got pre-release access at some point so maybe it, it just seems longer um but uh it's been on steam for quite a while in early access because uh, it was originally an epic exclusive um And that's been interesting because now I can see what people think of it. (laughs) And the verdict is in and everyone loves it. It's got like 96% positive reviews after thousands. Uh, So it's been a a huge hit and a success. That is slightly surprising to me because (laughs) to me, I do like it. I like it a lot. But uh, the more I play it, the more the tension between a deck builder and a story-based RPG really chafes. They they seem to fight Mm. each other at every turn and like when i'm replaying cuz i've played every there's three different characters each has a unique story and i'm re, i've played all of them once now not i haven't finished them all but i've played you know the bulk of them and replaying them i, I don't uh you know i'm getting impatient with the text i want to skip it all because i've seen most of it before and the little things are different and you can take different decisions and stuff but most of it's the same and there's just a lot of it and you know unlike ftl unlike um uh monster train unlike roguelikes in general that have story events these ones are wordy they are conversations where you have got to skip and skip and skip and then get to the decision and make make a choice and the the choices matter enough that you can't just skip the whole thing and disengage you've got to pay enough attention to know what you're doing Um, but at the same time it's mostly retreads and when i'm engaging with a deck builder i am always just itching for that next like choice that next upgrade that next way of customizing my deck of working towards this this thing i'm trying to craft into a well-oiled machine And so I'm really impatient for the stuff in between. And so that really kind of clashes for me. And then also, like Unexplored 2, it's very long, um, you know, playthroughs. Uh, It's an RPG journey in which you're building a character and, um, you know, deciding who you are in this world. And I do, I can get invested in that. Um, But that clashes badly with a deck builder where, uh, especially this deck builder, where you can have, very sudden deaths i i was having a great time with um the sort of war hero character um and i built a uh a build that was working well for me and i would sort of decided who he was like each time you can kind of as your negotiation deck evolves and your combat deck evolves you can kind of decide like um am i a ruthless person who intimidates everybody in negotiation because i have all this this reputation for killing people um in combat or in this case I decided I'd just be everyone's friend. He's this guy is sort of has a good rep and I I built a negotiating deck around just being like the smooth talking, nice guy who would um always spare people and, and try and make friends instead of enemies. Um but you know, packed a punch if he actually had to, to fight somebody. And got really invested in that, got like two two days into it, which is the campaigns are three days long each. And then they just sent 30 to 50 feral auto dogs at me <laughs> and I was killed. <laughs> they it wasn't thirty to fifty, it was nine, which doesn't sound like a lot when I say it out loud, but if you see it on screen, it just looks absurd. It looks like the UI broke. There's so many fucking auto dogs. <laughs> and it was just like a random thing. I just decided to help a guy in need and uh nine auto dogs showed up and i can't fight nine things only four of them can attack at once and again that number sounds small but four things attacking at once is insane and it's also just really random you know if they all decide to attack me for example there's no amount of block i can ever have that's gonna save me uh yeah. and that's what happened so i lost <laughs> and the whole thing all that investment just comes crashing down and you're just like uh it's just over what <laughs> what
0: may I ask, is an auto dog
2: uh, it's a robot dog <laughs> um,
0: I see. How just, they go
2: feral is the bigger question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Badly, I, I wanna, Cyber gear, I've been talking about this. I'll send you the screenshot to. in some capacity. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just surprised that robot dogs have come up twice in such quick yeah. succession. That's my main, <laughs> my main takeaway from this. <laughs> they,
2: um, they, it's the a screen on which, it, it shows this says the words feral autodog so many times because every feral auto dog is called feral auto dog And I think it's class is also feral auto dog. <laughs> and so it says that the word, those words twice on every single unit portrait and there's nine of them. And then in the bottom right hand corner, just for good measure, it just says feral auto dog twice more.
0: <laughs> feral by auto dog for feral auto dog. By feral auto dog. <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> um, like, it's also one of those phrases that becomes increasingly meaningless the more it is said. Yeah. Like. <laughs> and a very fair allotted dog to you. <laughs> is that it? Is that the six? Is that six Yeah. It's a bumper. Incredible.
1: Bumper bumper.
0: What a prop.
1: Shall we have some questions?
0: Yeah, go on then. Let's do exactly three, or as it's called in science of Tom Francis water dozen <laughs> sure yes um i said three i meant two as well um, <laughs> cool so. uh, the, the francis sixth of
2: a dozen <laughs>
0: uh do you mean a francis half dozenth of a dozen
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sure, say that.
0: Um, number jokes so that's a spicy one <laughs> Uh, First question uh, comes from uh, Matthias, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, Who writes in in response to a conversation I had with Graham on the previous episode of the podcast. He writes, "Uh, hi, Uh, mostly wanted to say I appreciated last week's Chris Graham pod helped me put some things in perspective that I hadn't even thought about regarding how we get into certain hobbies without necessarily guiding ourselves towards them, especially as children as an adult. It's far more plausible to suddenly decide to get into telescopes and find yourself cohabiting with a big tube you wheel outside twice a year. As a child, you often take what you can get. I'd add to that a philosophical idea that I learned of only lately, that there are three innate psychological needs, autonomy, competence, and relatedness, of which which at least the the first two are often strongly, if implicitly, discouraged at school, along with the fact that the barrier of entry to many video games and similar slightly geeky hobbies is low. This does explain the strong draw towards video game worlds, where we can express both autonomy and probably also competence, at least compared to our parents. Though my dad is still better than me at Civ. It does, however, also partly explain why many people seem to be drawn away from games as adults. Yes, there's the added fact of free time crumbling to vague memory, but I feel games, for some reason, don't have the staying value of, say, books, where you feel like shit. I'm not a bad. Per- I'm a bad person for having not read a good book for a while. Still, but maybe that is just a cultural trope. Yet, yeah, silly question: What's the first video game you remember liking or getting into that turned not turned out to not be good at all when you later replayed it? Uh, thanks again. Regards, uh, Matthias.
1: I don't know whether it's—I could say that it's not good at all, but I did find I definitely invested myself in some of the kind of those PlayStation art classics like. Aiko and um, Shadow of the Colossus. Ooh, when they spicy, came out. Alex, it is Holy spicy. Sh- this Holy is spicy.
0: Shit. You saved it. For, you saved the spiciest for last, didn't you? He's <laughs> coming cool.
2: for the king. He best not miss. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, you
1: know, I, I, I think my desire for them to be great helped me love them when they came out. And going back to the kind um, of the remakes, um, I don't know didn't have the magic for me again because i think i think also uh the sense of space that they had made were novel when they came out like the sort of a game with it is quiet with bird song with beautiful light in it like that was kind of novel on a playstation one and then an open world was novel on a playstation two um you know and a kind of realistic horse um and <laughs> and
0: so uh
1: you should have read the, the, bollo- the back
0: of the the yeah. back of the bollock, the back of the box, yeah. <laughs> the Real back sports. of the bollocks. What are the back of the bollocks bullet points? <laughs> the back of the box bullet points. That is hard to say without saying the word bollocks. I believe. <laughs> the back of the book bollock points of the bollocks. What are the back of the book bullet points?
1: I hope so. I wish it was. <laughs> it would have been better. I'd have loved it even more then, and then been even more disappointed. But no, I, yeah, yeah. I think I think for me usually it's the games that kind of, you know, I treasured for because I didn't have many games or because because they were novel or mm. amazing for their times, and then you come back and you go, Well, now I've been spoiled and all games are shit
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is that surely there is a difference between these were never good and these have been surpassed.
1: Right. I think I think there's a class of game that is um that is before it's timey kind of a game where, you know, yeah. they are really reaching and the the volume of the, the imagination or the kind of their ambition is great at the time. I think there are games like, I don't know, Doom or like the Stone Colds, you know, Tetris, whatever, which have that timelessness to it because they didn't rely on, particularly on amazing kind of reaching technology or raise, amazing reaching design at the time or no they, they were ambitious at the time but anyway they they hold up today and but i think that eco and particularly shot of the classes are a bit clunky now so they don't have know they've got that in the way as well
0: mm, that is a spicy one I'm trying to think like because I, I was approaching this from the point of view of like you know, game like trying to find that game that was like I really thought this was good because I wanted it to be good and it wasn't yeah. really. Because I, I was also thinking like, about yeah. June two. I went back to
1: June two, mm. and I loved, I loved that, uh, but I kind of I can forgive it a bit more because you know it kind of trailblazed so many things.
0: Right. Well, it's often the the goal of those, or the the not the goal but the the effect of games that jankily push one envelope or another is to open pathway for the people to come along and do it better right yeah like and i don't i don't think that makes them bad games in hindsight just that if, to me i exactly. think there's a distinct there's a distinct category for games that you probably wouldn't revisit but you're glad they were there yeah. right um you know whereas like i think i mentioned it on the last podcast because it was a perennial thing i was obsessed with as a kid but like i for example i'm really not sure how good the various Like desert strike games are but I loved (laughs) them as a kid right and I think in hindsight that might not be a good formula or maybe it's amazing like very frustrating top down limited point of view helicopter combat games is not a genre that anyone's ever made again as far as I can tell no one ever did that again Um, and maybe there's a reason for that but I haven't revisited it either yeah Am I wrong? Is this, is this right good all the whole time? If so, why did no one do it again?
1: I did have a sneaking suspicion it wasn't good at the time because, yeah, here's, here's a game where you can't see the thing that's going to kill you. <laughs> but you got to go there anyway. Sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah. You're a helicopter bee. You can only look down. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, uh, the one that would be interesting, I haven't gone back to it, but it'd be interesting to go back to Ultima Underworld for me, because that was one of the first mm. PC games I ever played, and it was completely magical at the time, but it has been surpassed in most of those ways. But at the same time, it also had, uh, it's a very particular energy, like a very particular vibe, in the sense that, you know, the modern, the descendant of it is Skyrim, but Skyrim doesn't have a dungeon that is anything like, this dungeon because I wonder what was entirely a dungeon, and so it, the dungeon had within right. it things like underground rivers and and uh, little societies built into the, the um these corridors and it just had this very like makeshift feeling like everything had, everyone had just sort of made the best of being down there for, for their yeah. whole lives and uh that was an interesting vibe. the one I have been back to um and it isn't uh uh i can't remember what the phrasing in the letter was, but it isn't bad um is n. That Mm. is a game that I loved, the original N, I loved at the time. And when I came to play N, it is, you know, by all accounts, better than N, and, you know, they they haven't lost anything. But I have changed enough in the time since that it's no longer my cup of tea at all. Like, it feels uh, fiddly, and it's just that kind of challenge is something I'm no longer interested in. Just just like, oh, you slipped slightly off this block. Next time, don't do that. Uh, That used to be something that I could get really really addicted to trying to improve and trying to get fluid out and trying to uh, have that satisfaction of mastery and these days i'm just like nah fuck it (laughs) (laughs) alex i'm gonna
0: i'm gonna ask for your perspective on something was was sonic adventure ever good
1: (laughs) (laughs) no i hated that at the time oh
0: shit because i asked that because i i loved that game that's a good example yeah well i was i was okay did did you was
1: did you buy, like, obviously this was on Dreamcast. It was like, yeah. and so therefore Look, you needed, you needed to love the green Dreamcast. I think that it was mm-hmm. not love for Sonic, but love for the Dreamcast that feels that. Fi-
0: I loved Sonic as a kid. And I also had the, the deep sunk cost of a child who was being made fun of for having a Dreamcast. <laughs> so it was, it was maybe, you know, because like, I mean none of the none of the nerds at school were, were were cool, but the cool ones had PlayStations. And I had a Dreamcast. Dreamcast was a
1: very nice machine.
0: It loved, was a beautiful machine. Movie. Exactly. Exactly. Right? Like it's the kind of thing that you evangelize because you're being made fun of. <laughs> um, um and um and so I, I remember Sonic Adventure as a kind of transcendental experience. This is this was Mario sixty-four but for the better character. It's got um, a killer whale in it. It's got a killer whale in it. There isn't, an, uh, <laughs> uh, and like, but and I remember very fondly and I've never gone back to it for all these reasons because I suspect it doesn't hold up because I suspect for, for a ton of very good reasons. I was going to say like, you know, purist reasons like game design. Um, it probably doesn't <laughs> hold up.
1: <laughs> Fun.
0: You know, um, next to like the, the equivalent Mario games or, or Zelda from the same period. Um, but the magic of getting a character I, I loved as a kid in 3D was enough at the time to kind of carry me through it. I, I think this is this. the perfect
1: example, Chris. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think, I think, think it the might be a perfect example.
0: example. Um, <laughs> I will say this. I will say this. The first Sonic event, both Sonic adventure games, have good endings, and I think games are hard to end at the best of times, and I. I think I think you know Mario games cop out of the the obligation to have an exciting ending by just being pretty excellent the whole way through (laughs) and making you feel nice and then ending at the right time. Um, Whereas I think in my heart of heart I could never love a game like that. I need something that lurches um, towards something steadily
1: towards and then and
0: I want I want to cheer when it lands, but like happily on its ass. You know what I mean? Like it's not gonna. It's not going to dazzle me. Sonic Adventure 1 ends with something all games should do, I think, regardless of genre or context. And it has a real live crowd of human beings that they hired to shout, to chant, Sonic, 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 (laughs) in the background when you're doing The Last Boss. I believe every single game should do that. Every single one. I, 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 I defy you to name the game that that wouldn't improve.
1: I think that to really understand that, I think you need to, to have played something as dispiriting as Sonic Adventure first. <laughs> what?
0: Okay, Alex, how about this? What if Ico ended like that? Or Shadow of the Colossus?
1: <laughs> Ico, Ico. Or <laughs>
0: yeah. the,
1: little boy
0: with... Boy boy that isn't the horse. Boy that isn't the horse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, like, honestly, it's great. And the, and the second, second Sonic Adventure game, ends with a rock ballad as you flip between controlling two different Sonics in space to fight a big turtle. I think I don't fucking remember. I just remember it being the most fucking exciting thing that ever happened to me. Um, and I think I, I, refuse to believe that these things were bad. Um, actually, you know what? I'll accept that they were bad. I'm going to be more mature about this. I accept that they were probably bad. I had a good time when I had no taste. And everything that happened since has been a mistake. (laughs) He said, surrounded by the evidence that that never changed. (laughs) Oh, wow. This
1: has been cathartic.
0: It has been. It has been. It has been. Uh, We should probably do another question, shouldn't we? That's what I said we would do. And so I'm going to do it right now. Is this...
1: Is this the second half of the sixth of a... No, the half dozen of the... Francis' half dozen.
0: Yes. Whatever you just said, yes. Um, Daniel writes, Dear Crates and Crowbars, your recent discussion of a Hood Outlaws and Legends um, got me wondering, does the average Brit care about Robin Hood or King Arthur? As someone from the USA... I generally perceive the choice to use them as uninspired, lazy or driven by the fact that they're established in the public domain. Is it different if you're from the British Isles? That's from Daniel. No, I think we see it that way too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it's
1: it, funny that yeah, Robin Hood definitely exists. I've, I know. I, 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 I just don't think i definitely exists. <laughs> <That's really good. laughs> no, I've, I can't say that I've thought about Robin Hood for a long time before that game came out and Mm. sort of popped back into my head. But that at the same time, then I thought about it and actually Robin Hood has been a constant presence throughout my life. Like whether it was on children's TV through the, the Robin Hood series, comedy series, which was good, the various films and things, the feature films, Kevin Costner and whatever. He's definitely been around, but like, Hasn't really felt like an important part of my life through any part of it. Arthur, I think, has been there and, and played more of a role. I think, weirdly enough, just today I was read that um, that King Arthur's done a big fight in Bath. Maybe <laughs> mm.
2: you mean like recently we discovered that he did, or like he did,
0: he didn't do it yesterday, right? He got into a he got into a barney outside space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. And it's probably Albion's darkest hour, but it wasn't what we were expecting. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was just doing some deep research into the city on um and on, on Wikipedia. It said he'd done a battle, so yeah, maybe.
2: Well, there's also so Arthur's had a better a better um uh, time of it lately. So Inkle's previous game, Pendragon, was uh, mm. Arthurian, and of course, uh, Green Knight is coming out. Yeah, again. I was going to yeah, mention battle. Green Knight. She yeah. looks think, real cool.
0: Yeah, like I think. Arthurian myth particularly is so interwoven with like um British folklore past a certain point that it's I think it kind of means something different to be like you know uh I feel the same way about things drawing on Arthurian myth as I do about them drawing on Greek Roman myth in some ways and it's very familiar although I think um well-executed Arthurian myth that kind of gets to the spirit of some of those stories is so rare that's one of the reasons I'm excited about the the Green Knight um and um but i agree that sort of taking you know camelot or Arthurian legend as a setting for a relatively otherwise generic and kind of you know game of thrones inspired kind of Mm -hmm. fantasy story um is a bit played out as i think even though there's been some good work done in in this in every regard particularly for, for, for kids and for ya audiences using arthur as a kind of springboard for like you know urban fantasy heroism has also been done just a few too many times um but i'm not necessarily opposed to it i think i think it's interesting seeing the context of this question um you know as daniel says a writing as an american because you know we like this is from a point of view of like this is fairly ancient folklore right this isn't a public domain character that gets overused in the way that you know perhaps Sherlock Holmes is or something like that where you can still point to a single point of origin and a single kind of you know semi-canonical interpretation of what that character is you know Sherlock Holmes i oh, sorry that King Arthur is so adaptable as a mm. kind of you know a, a, a kind of folkloric object that I think it still has potential to be to remix in interesting ways and I think it's inevitably I'd be interested to know, because I appreciate that, that Robin Hood's less resonant to me, but also while I was born in the North, I didn't stay there. So I wonder if it's different if you grow up in Nottingham, for example, versus, you know, growing up, in my case, in in, in Wiltshire and, and in the West Country, where you get snippets of Arthurian folklore everywhere all the time, right? Yeah. Like, this, this, these stories just burble around. And so, you know, do I care when he crops up in a game in a relatively sort of anodyne fashion no not really um is it sort of interesting when it gets adapted interestingly yes although i think also um i feel like those stories have such a magnetic pull that they you know i i, I would be more interested to see the other element far there are far more elements of you know uh british by meaning the island's folklore that I would rather see adapted at this point as well if, if yeah. that was to be the thing we were doing
1: yeah great I think yeah. also there's an element of you know so Arthur is is so much of that stuff then subsequently was absorbed into general sort of fantasy that sort of convention that's grown up over the last century you know whether through Tokyo or Tolkien L-
0: largely and, through Tolkien yeah
1: yeah and then Dungeons and Dragons or whatever it's all kind of percolated through and you know filtered and so it has it feels like it has more relevance to games as a result just by its natural natural sort of existence whereas i think yeah um from yeah from our my southern point of view uh like robin hood feels a lot more parochial and therefore yeah i'm a little bit kind of like here's our little robin
0: game world do you want to play our robin game I feel like I feel like Robin Hood is interesting because it's like Robin Hood isn't a genre, like I would say in into itself. Whereas like Arthurian storytelling is it yeah. brings so many kind of tropes and, and stru- structures and things, not least the big group of the big ensemble of knights and they're all friends and they go off on quests collectively or alone, which is basically all superhero comics. Like to take it away from Tolkien momentarily, right? Like you know um you want the real first avenger i guess it was f- fucking king arthur wasn't i don't know but you know what i mean like um but does that that those tropes kind of kind of gain have so much resonance whereas i think those sort of you know robin hood legend is is a far more specific and singular story and therefore you know um you struggle to find an adaptation that took took it in a wildly different direction than Man, shoot, bow, good, rob from rich, give to poor.
1: Yeah. But what a rich, what a rich, you know, you've got loads of game verbs there. Ranged and melee combat. Oh, sorted. <laughs> Stealth, got it.
2: Give? What do you do with give? A loose moral justification for whatever the player wants to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Rob from the rich and refuse the quest reward in return for a later better reward. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's the that's the most virtue we're capable of as players. <laughs> that is all the questions we've got time for this evening because it's getting late. I'm tired. If if you would like to send us a question for future episodes of the podcast, you can email us. Why not questions at Crowbar dot com. You can also find us on Twitter at crate and crowbar and thanks as ever to our patreon supporters uh, you can find out uh, about supporting the podcast at patreon.com forward slash creating crowbar and thank you to every one of you that does so we have a youtube channel youtube.com forward slash creating crowbar where you can listen to these same podcasts while staring at an unmoving still image we have a website creating crowbar.com wherein you'll find links to many things including our discord server Both of them, actually, at this point, including one for the Role Models miniatures community, if you want additional bangings on about Warhammer. That's where I do that. In the meantime, I have been Chris Thurston. I've I've been been Alex Poisson. Oh! Oh. oh. (laughs) Perfect. Synchronicity. (laughs) Normally, 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 neither of you, or whoever it is, Committed exactly at the same time to prevent a situation where one of you stops abruptly to allow the other to continue. That was a rare <laughs> example of a perfect crosstalk. Congratulations. And let's try again. I've been Tom Rogers. Oh, 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 he did the fast-paced, high-pitched robot voice of a man getting it in there.
1: I've been Alex
0: Wiltshire and the sort of relaxed wizard voice of a man who knows he can take his time. Incredible. Well, um that's it, isn't it? Yeah. That's cool. done. Nice. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. I said it normal, look. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> it was a stealth, it. It was a stealth <laughs> one. Should we try it again? <laughs> that, yeah. This is where we want uh, uh, yeah. that. <laughs> <an enemy. laughs>
2: <laughs> the, the communal safety of Crossdock.